Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Welcome to this week's bonus episode of Stop the Killing. We are going to be sharing today a debate that Catherine took part in hosted by Joffe Emergency Services, a debate called Run, Hide, Fight versus Lockdown. This is going to be part one of the debate. You can find part two next week on our Tuesday episode, or if you can't wait that long, you can head over to Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button. You'll get all of our episodes there ad-free and one week early. And if you want to see the videos, you can go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. With that, let's roll the tape. Welcome to our special live event. We are so excited to have you here with us today to discuss two active shooter methodologies, run, hide, fight, and lockdown with two nationally known experts. For those joining a Joffe webinar for the first time, welcome. And for those returning schools, we're so glad to see you back. Our goal for this special event is to inspire, engage, and educate about the challenges around school safety. One of our most frequently asked questions when we talk about responding to active shooters is about the best way to teach and practice responses to keep our communities safe. This debate is one of the ways we are committed to exploring this answer with you. We are thrilled to be joined by not one, but two top experts in their field, Katherine Schweit and Dr. Jacqueline Schildkraut. Please join me in welcoming founder and CEO of Joffe Emergency Services, Chris Joffe. Hello and welcome. We're going to lean into some difficult conversations today. I am so excited to actually get to introduce our panelists. Kate Schweit is an expert in active shooters, mass shootings, and security policies and procedures. Kate served as an FBI special agent for 20 years, working both national security and criminal matters, a role she took on after serving as an assistant state's attorney in Chicago. When the Sandy Hook Elementary Massacre occurred, she was assigned to create and run its active shooter program, authoring the FBI's seminal research. She's the author of the book, Stop the Killing, uh, How to End Mass Shootings, uh, and she co-hosts with Sarah Ferris the award-nominated podcast, Stop the Killing. She's also a longtime member of the faculty at DePaul College uh, of Law and Webster Universities in my hometown. And next, Jackie Schilkraut. 
He is a national expert on school and mass shootings. Jackie is the interim executive director of the Regional Gun Violence Consortium at the Rockefeller Institute of Government. Her work focuses on the effectiveness of policies aimed at prevention, mitigation, response, and recovery. Since 2018, she has conducted the nation's largest study on the effects of lockdown drills on uh, school participants and skill mastery. And she consults with school districts to help improve their emergency response plans. She's the author of three books, including Lockdown Drills, Connecting Research and Best Practices for School Administrators, Teachers, and Parents, that came out early, uh, last year, <laughs> and served as the editor for two additional volumes. She has published more than 30 scholarly articles on topics related to mass shootings and school shootings, as well as school security. So with that, let's dive in. I'm going to start by asking you, Jackie, to just begin to share your experience, share your background, and share the sort of foundation for lockdown, the strategy that you believe in for not just active shooters, but somebody on campus who doesn't belong there. Yeah, that's a great question. And thank you so much to Jothi Academy or Jothi Emergency Services for having myself and Kate to join for this conversation. You know, this wasn't necessarily something I set out planning to do in my research. I started off looking at media representations of shootings, trying to say like, look, we're not getting the full picture. And unfortunately, one day I realized I can't change the media. Um, and so I started kind of delving into school security and school safety. And one of the first things I really looked at was emergency notification systems, because that had been such a glaring failure in the Virginia Tech shooting, um, which was kind of the reason I had gone back to school. And um, to kind of fast forward to how I ended up here in 2018, I'm actually from the community that was not supposed to have a mass shooting. I grew up in the Parkland area and about three and a half weeks after our shooting, we had our spring school safety symposium and John Michael Keyes from the I Love You Guys Foundation came and presented on the standard response protocol. Um, for any of the viewers who may not be familiar with the I Love You Guys Foundation, it was formed after John Michael and his wife's uh, Ellen's daughter, Emily, was killed in Platte Canyon. And um, it just so happened that the director of public safety for New York's fifth largest district was in the audience and said, we want that and we'll give you whatever you want. And um, so I, we formed a partnership and it's still going five years uh, later. Uh, when I came into the district, you know, one of the things that was a challenge is they really didn't have any coordination. You could go anywhere in these 30 different school buildings and everyone was doing something different. So you go to school A and you get one response, you go to school B and you get a completely different response. And we know that one of the things in an emergency we want is predictability. It makes it easier for everybody to respond. It makes it better for the first responders. So from their perspective, we were really focusing on standardizing emergency response in an all hazards approach, but Obviously, my work has focused more on the lockdown side. Um, what, like I said, wasn't something I was planning to do, but five years later, here we are, and more than 400 drills of data still going strong. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and Kate, I'll turn to you to also sort of offer the, the foundation how you got to, well, this seat next to me, um, and, uh, and and really me next to you, but, uh, but that, you know, sort of that led you to run, hide, fight that led you to the strategy that's now been adopted in, in actually most non-school environments around the country? Yeah, run, hide, fight, uh, you know, is kind of the, the end part of my uh, journey that really started, you know, as a prosecutor in Chicago uh, and then joining the FBI, I worked national security matters. So terrorism, espionage, I didn't really plan on going down this route, but as happens all the time, um, 
you know, I was with the FBI when Sandy Hook happened. And of course, our uh, team, uh, our SWAT team up there responded with uh, so many others. And uh, that was such a tragedy, uh, which is almost uh, ridiculous to even have to say that. Uh, Sandy Hook was so terrible. And I was, you know, there in FBI headquarters at that time working with our critical incident response group. So I had, um, you know, I had so much experience being in those command post situations, those incident command post situations where I'm in the headquarters building and we're watching horrible things happen. And Sandy Hook happens and immediately there is pressure uh, to come up with answers. And the Biden, uh, Mr. Biden was the vice president at the time. Uh, President uh, Obama ordered the vice president's office to set up a committee. I was snapped up and picked up as the exec FBI executive to put into the team. And then I worked for the next many months with uh, executives from the other administrative offices, like the uh, the parts of the, edu- uh, of the uh, executive. So HHS and FEMA, all those letters, as we call them, the three letter groups, HHS and FEMA and DHS and Department of Ed. And, and really, um, Run, Hide, Fight came about because in those first meetings, what what Jackie was just talking about with the media in those first meetings, the Department of Education kept saying the media is just making a bigger story out of this. The media is just making a bigger story out of this. Now we have research now that that certainly shows, yeah, no, uh, that the, the the numbers are increasing. But at the time, you know, we 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 needed to prove that, which is the work that you know we worked on at at the time. We were looking, okay, what are the things that we need to look at? What are the biggest concerns and I, we bucketed everything in our heads. We were like, everything is prevention, response, or recovery before, during, and after. And we all get that now in this space. We all get before, during, and after. And you, and you, you have to focus on all three. So with regard to the before, um, we, the FBI has a film studio. We were going to film something, uh, create a, you know, create a, a, a training film, or we talked about that. And then actually the city of Houston had just released just a few months earlier uh, in July, I think of that year. Um, and uh, Sandy Hook happened in December. In July, the city of Houston, the mayor's office had on a DHS grant created this Run, Hide, Five program. And they had created this program that is available with training materials with it in a in like eight languages or eight or 10 languages. So it was a, a ready-made instant answer that gave us um, something. And I took this video to the team and said, I want you to watch the six minute video and see if we can use this and adopt it nationally. And as you would expect from the Department of Education executive, there was a little pushback because fight is not a word that they allow in and schools. And so, so we had a very, we had several very spirited discussions. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say it that way. But the thing that I really loved about Run Hide Fight is that really it was, it was a program designed uh based on my experience. I mean, I we've been at these scenes, I've been at these scenes, our teams have been at these scenes, and we know that people either run or they hide or they fight. And those are very translatable for we have uh, different people with different languages in this country. Those are tiny little verbs that everybody can understand. So I think it really is a, from a global standpoint, it was a great translatable way to train people in the actual things that happen. And that's one of the reasons why we chose that very next few months later to push it out nationally. I called the mayor's office and said, we want to release this nationally. And they said, have at it. They've been supportive ever since. Wow. Wow. All right. 
Well, before we get into some of the, the sort of specific points, I, I want to offer each of you a, uh, an opportunity to, to just sort of start with, there are misunderstandings, right? With any public awareness campaign, anybody in the public health space, any, any educator, right? really any of us um, can assume and understand that there are always going to be misunderstandings and sometimes even um, downright misinformation that is distributed around any idea, especially one that relates to human safety. And so, uh, Jackie, let's start with you. What are some of the misunderstandings that you run into around lockdown and the strategies that are necessary there? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm kind of glad we're starting with that because I think it really sets a good foundation for us to build from today. You know, one of the challenges with lockdowns, um, you know, we hear about something like run, hide, fight being called an options-based approach. Um, Alice and, you know, the 4E and there's all these other ones that come into play. So one of the biggest misconceptions when we teach lockdown is that we're not providing options. Um, So if students, let's say, are in the bathroom and they get locked out of the classroom, we don't just tell them that's it. Good luck. We provide them options. So we talk about self-evacuation. How do you get out of the building? We're not calling it run, right? We don't like to use the word hide because that's sort of a little bit more passive. So we go, okay, what do we know about all of the shooting incidents that have ever happened? So number one, we know that the number one life-saving device in an active shooter event is a door lock. That was highlighted by the Sandy Hook Advisory Commission. The practice of lockdowns, even before lockdowns were the thing they are today, used in 95% of schools across this nation. The Columbine, it's it's actually in a really small footnote in that Columbine Review Commission report, credited the practice of lockdowns with saving lives during that shooting. Now, of course, we know that shootings today are over in about five minutes or less. And so what we're trying to do is put seconds on the clock for people, mm-hmm. right? But if you look at something like Columbine, where you had two people who had four guns, 100 bombs, and free run of a building for 50 minutes, they never once tried to breach a locked door. So we're trying to encourage people as a primary strategy within the building, get behind that locked door, get out of sight, and let's put those seconds back on the clock. Of course, there's going to be times that's not possible, whether it's you're outside, you're in an open space, you can't lock your door, you get locked out. So I think that's really the biggest misconception about lockdown is that number one, we're not providing options. The other thing that we get a lot is that we're not teaching people to be active in their in what they're doing. Um, so a lot of times we get told, we are just teaching kids to go hide in the corner and pray. And it's like, well, no, we're not. We're going based on what we know the evidence says, which is to that they've got five minutes and the perpetrator has five minutes. How do we build a time barrier and physical distance between those two groups to reduce that harm and that mitigate and you know mitigate that harm and the loss of life? Excellent. Excellent. Uh, and I'll, I'll sort of ask the same question to you, Kate. When you think about sort of the misunderstandings, the misinformation, sometimes disinformation that's circulated, um, what are some of the things you run up against the most? Yeah, from a disinformation standpoint, I think that the, um, you know, I actually heard somebody mention something just this week that was kind of frightening. He said, you know, I think, are you telling people that we need to tell everybody that they need to run towards the people and fight with them? <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> no, uh, no was my polite answer. But I think that from a disinformation standpoint, what we were trying to do was push out something that allowed for the broadest coverage of the options that you have and that you train to each one. We really struggled with the fact that, and again, I take this back to, you know, when we were meeting with um, then Vice President Biden's office team and we were working together, people bought into the lockdown concept. They bought into the close us behind the doors. It's they just didn't buy into the 
Oh, escape if you can, or maybe fight if you have to. And, you know, when we look at numbers, fight if you have to. Nobody wants to fight if they have to. But we know that in the research that, you know, actually Jackie and I both worked on in the research that the FBI released about active shooters in a 14-year study, 10% of those incidents were stopped by an unarmed civilian, an unarmed civilian who was able to stop an armed person and end the shooting. So we know that there are options to run. We know there are options to hide and there are options to fight. I think that when you don't want to talk about the other ends, the disinformation campaign, so to speak, comes from people saying running is scared. You send people into a hallway, they're going to all get shot. Or as the Department of Education said to me, well, you know, if you let kids run from school, then how can we account for where they are? You know, so it's failure to maybe, I think, appreciate how many students locked down. I mean, and understand that we were at the FBI. Our responsibility at the White House level was to push out a program that we thought would work nationally, not just with schools, mm. not just with schools. And also those schools all run administrative offices, right? All the people who are sitting and working in their administrative office right now, they've no kids around them. What are they going to do if a shooter comes in? And we know that that happens too. We want them to, we want them to understand and appreciate that run, hide, fight is learn the options so you know what to do so you don't freeze. We all know how to freeze. We've all done that. I mean, I've carried a gun for a living and it's easy to think uh, if you don't know what you're doing, it's all about training and planning and training and planning and training and planning. Because if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to freeze and you're going to spend all this time in denial first. And we wanted to get people past denial and we wanted them to move, whether that's quickly to lock doors, which is, I agree with you, Jackie, the most important thing that you can do is lock the doors, have locks on the doors. That's the first thing I addressed in my book when in the school chapter is a locked door is your best defense. So absolutely, that's true. But I think that if you fail to discuss because you're afraid to discuss the other aspects and talk with the participants about running or even fighting, you've missed opportunities. And that causes death. I mean, it just does. You know, it's interesting because I, I can definitely appreciate where you're coming from. But I think, you know, if we look at kind of all of the incidents that have happened, you know, first of all, I work in an urban inner city school district. They're trying to get kids not to fight with each other. Um, so I can't can't talk to them about fight. Um, you know, but if you look at something like the STEM school shooting that happened in 2019, that was actually a district that used the standard response protocol that I use in my research. And the shooting began in a classroom, which is also, as you know, very, very rare, right? It usually is more open very spaces. Unusual. Very unusual. Yeah. Um, and they, so they weren't necessarily taught to fight, but when the worst day came, they figured it out. Very similar to with Sandy Hook, one of my friends, Carly Posey, who also works from the I Love You Guys Foundation, Carly's son Riken was in one of the rooms where the shooting happened. And when the perpetrator stopped to reload, Riken yelled, run, and took off and was able to save not only himself, but a number of his classmates. Right. So I think there are ways in which that human instinct does kick in in those moments without necessarily having the training. But that training component to what Kate said is so important because we do have a natural tendency to freeze. And that's why drilling is so important, right? We're building muscle memory so that in that very worst day, when our mind goes blank and our cognitive functioning stops, our body is going to take over and do what we've trained it to do, that just like a well-oiled machine. So let me suggest this too, though, about the idea. I think that, that when you talk about misinformation, a lot of people probably don't know that there are kids who survived at Sandy Hook because they ran. 
They, they did. And there are kid, there are people who survived at Virginia Tech because they jumped out windows. There are two teachers who ran down the hallway and escaped. I mean, running is ineffective and it has been shown to be an effective methodology. All those kids that jumped out of that second floor at Norris Hall are alive today and adults today because their professor held the door that didn't have a lock on it shut, right? So that those kids could jump out the windows. I think what we um, were concerned about was getting them past that freezing part and that talking about it. But another thing that has specifically has to do with school is kids are taught to be obedient and to follow the rules and follow the directions. And I can give you the same comparison for employees because I've seen this with employees. But for schools, if you don't give a child permission to flee out the back door, they may not do it. And that may sound ridiculous that in the moment you may think, well, of course they'll do that. But there are also kids who won't do that because their instinct is to follow the directions of the adults and they haven't been given permission to go out that door that they've always been told that's an emergency door, never pop out that door. If you don't drill and run through that emergency door, you're not going to, kid is not going to know what it's like to do that and what's on the other side of the door. And I think they faced that in the Pulse nightclub is a good example. You know, they popped out these doors and then in some cases they had like big patio walls they couldn't get over. People hadn't gone out. Now, of course, Pulse is a different situation. I'll tell you one short story. I was running a drill with a company and I had a security guard at the front desk. I said to him, what would you do if you saw somebody coming towards you and your camera, you could see it and he's coming up the sidewalk and he's got a shotgun in his hand or he's got a rifle in his hand or handgun or something. What would you do if you saw him coming up? And he said, I think I'd call my boss. And I said, you'd call your boss, you know, because I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I, I didn't want to say what? Right? You'd call your boss? And I said, well, so why would you do that? He said, well, because I'm not allowed to leave the desk unless the boss tells me it's okay. And that's an adult, right? And so I think that that is the kind of thing that's kind of informed part of what we were concerned about is that people do that. And the other thing that I actually wrote about is, you know, when I researched the people in the World Trade Center, the people who were on the floors closest to where the planes hit were the slowest to leave the buildings. This disbelief that something bad could be happening, we want to get people past that point. And that's why we really pushed for the, yes, you're probably going to be in lockdown. Yes, 70% of the incidents end in five minutes or less, half of them in two minutes or less. But those first few seconds, as you said, minutes, seconds are super, super important. Yeah. I want to take a moment to just sort of tie into a couple of different pieces that we find in training. And then I'll turn to you, Jackie. One, to the idea around that denial piece at the beginning, right? In Amanda Ripley's book, The Unthinkable, she goes into great detail and and sort of pulls this apart and talks through the difficulty that we have as just human beings accepting that something bad is happening. I've seen it from a medical perspective. And in fact, if you've ever taken a CPR class with Felicia at Get CPR Done, um, she'll talk about the fact that people, especially people in their 40s, upper 40s to lower 60s, sometimes maybe early 70s, will say, it's impossible that this pain I have in my chest is a heart attack, <laughs> right? They say, it is. there's no way in the world that that's what this is. This is indigestion, right? They come up with every excuse. Gavin DeBecker, who's a, a security expert that we uh, have a ton of respect for, has a great quote that I will butcher, but I'm going to try here. Um, and it's it's something to the effect of only human beings are intelligent enough to spot something wrong and then 
I don't think he says silly enough. There's another, anyway, it sounds like I'm, I'm saying it's a bad word. It's not, it, but something like silly enough to disregard it, right. And to move on in absence of that belief. The net is one, in fact, one of the chapters of my book is default to progress, right? Like we have to commit to this thing is happening. It is critical that we jump through denial. And so this is a long way of trying to get to this point. When we do trainings, when you're out conducting a training on one of the strategies that hopefully you'll adopt from today's conversation, my biggest push is that you tell people you're going to face a period of denial. Let's talk about that. Let's inform people of what they're biologically, psychologically, and and physiologically going to experience so that they can recognize it and maybe, just maybe say, okay, I'm in a moment of denial. I'm going to choose to jump through it. I'm going to choose to default to progress and do something. Jackie, I want to give you a chance to, to sort of respond to, in particular, I'm often thoughtful about the time that lapses from the beginning of the event on. And I know that, in fact, in St. Louis and Virginia Tech, right, there are people who used unconventional strategies to escape this environment that they were in. One of the questions we've started to get is, should we be putting ladders in second floor windows? And, and right, there's so many new questions that can come up. And I, I've heard you say before, let, let's get back to the basics. Let's come back to what are the barriers that we can put between us and the person on the other side of the door? So I'll give you some space there and then I'll move us to, to some of the strategy. Yeah, you know, um, one thing that I think that we all kind of agree on here and that I think has come up, but we I, I think really is important that we address is that there's a difference between practice and learning. And there is a difference between training and drills. So right now, if you look at data from the National Center of Education Statistics, 95% of schools have a plan for lockdown and are conducting lockdown drills. They say they're doing that. Well, yes. You know, that's right. That's your point, right? They're saying they're doing it. Can I pause there for just a second? The reason we're doing this session is because I keep getting phone calls from schools, even as recently as December, uh, that say we've never conducted a lockdown drill, and I am I am speechless. <laughs> uh, so I just I wanted to name that, but know that that ninety five percent is true of public schools. So we're talking well over a hundred thousand schools in the country. And to Kate's point, that is probably there's some potential quotes around that as far as to what degree of fidelity they're running these drills. Anyway, please continue. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So we have they're saying they're doing it. They have a plan. They're reporting that they're doing it. You know, one of the things, so the county that I work in, we have 18 independent school districts and I've talked to a number of different ones. You know, there's a difference between practicing with fidelity and just going through the motions. And, you know, if you tell everybody, what I always like try to encourage people is drill at the difficult times, right? Because we know from the research um, that, you know, like even we've conducted that mass shootings are most likely to, in schools are most likely to happen at arrival, dismissal, and lunch when people are congregated in mass in open spaces. So yes, it's very easy to do a lockdown drill on Tuesday at 9am when everybody's in their classroom and you go in the corner and shut the door and then you sit there for 10 minutes. That's not how you find out what your school is made of, right? If you want to understand um, you know, what you need to work on, what you need to improve, the plans that you need to think through and think about your options, right? You have to do it in a more realistic setting. What are we going to do when we have this cafeteria full of kids? Where are we going to go? I've showed up at schools where we have cafeterias full of kindergartners. And now it's like, well, they're in lunch. I don't care. Let's do it. And so then you kind of start to work through and troubleshoot because you don't want to be doing that in the moment. But practice is where you sort of test capacity, 
what you have to also think about is there's a training component that needs to go into it. So whether you're doing run, hide, fight, or you're doing locks, lights out of sight, there are clear delineated steps of what you should be doing. And if you want people to buy in and take it seriously, you have to create that culture of preparedness. One of the differences that I've noticed in Syracuse City School District, where I work, and other districts in central New York, is I've talked to high school students in other districts. They're like, yeah, we know that lockdown drills are when we go in the corner and hang out with our friends and poke each other and giggle. And I'm like, oh gosh, I'm like literally going to cry inside right now. But when we walk into Syracuse, because they've been through full training on an all hazards emergency response protocol, they know that when they hear that announcement, it's go time and that we are judging them. We are assessing them. We are collecting data and there will be feedback and we will come back and continue to do that. You have to get that buy-in. You have to talk to people about not, don't just tell them what to do. Say, why do we need you to do it? Mm -hmm. You need to get behind this locked door because we know this door lock is the most important life-saving device. We need you to get out of sight to make the room look vacant because if someone can't see you, they can't hurt you. We need you to not come back to the door. Don't answer door knocks because doors are points of vulnerability and things go through doors. So once you are out of sight, stay out of sight. Whoever needs to get in your room, whether it's an administrator or law enforcement, they're going to have a key. So, and then to your point, if you're not able to get into a room, what are your other options? You know, we don't just say like run out into the middle of the road and flag the first passing car down, right? Where are you going to go? How are you going to communicate with your parents? Do you know your phone number so you can call your parents and they can notify the district where you are? So having those plans and having those conversations is incredibly important. You know, one thing, I don't want to diminish the importance of what we are all talking about here. Um, But one thing I constantly talk about with kids and with adults, because sometimes the adults are actually worse than the kids, um, is in any one of these events, no matter how much we study them, there's 9,999 things that can all happen differently in a split second. I can't predict those for you. What we are teaching is decision-making. How can you assess your surroundings? How can you determine, okay, I'm in this room, I can barricade it and get out of sight, or this is not a safe room. I need to get out of this building, right? Because there's so much, so many challenges when you're in a school building versus an open space, which is what Houston had created Run High Fight for was open space um, office buildings. And, you know, I think everything has its utility in one place or another, but how do you assess your surroundings? What intel do you have? And how does that inform your decision-making going forward? So I think having those conversations and recognizing that going through the motions of practice is largely irrelevant without the training component in the first place. You know, because if I could speak to also some of the challenges um, with training and when you're the practical challenges, you know, when you're trying to figure out what to do in your school, um, I think oftentimes there is a, a there is a, there is a, this component of um, we don't really know what to train, and this is a scary subject, so we're just not going to talk about it. And and I think that's the reality of it. Now I have a daughter who is a um, who's a middle school teacher, and God bless her for doing that. And, uh, you know, she says to me uh, one time, uh, sometimes uh, she refers to it as uh, people who don't take the training uh, don't uh, and don't focus and and, and, and uh, focus on the training. And she said that's then they end up instead of with run, hide, fight, they end up with run, hide, die. You have to train. That's my middle school teacher who says that because she was raised with me, unfortunately. <laughs> and but she also says. And I think this is a good point. I, I, you know, I'm always pinging with her about you're in schools, you're in schools. What about this? And what about that? And the seriousness, what you're talking about seriousness. 
She said parents, uh, she believes that administrators and parents oftentimes uh, don't talk about this with kids because they think that it'll make kids afraid. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, and I would say, talk to your kids. If you think your kids don't know and aren't afraid of this concept of a school shooting, when they see it in the news all the time, they see it on TikTok, they see it on Instagram, they are watching, they know this is a possibility. So, you know, I think that's a good point that don't put your neuroses uh, on your kids. Instead, inform the kids. But if you are challenged, particularly in your school, I mean, I think that I think what we see, what I see across America is that, you know, we don't have enough Jackies across America. Like every county needs to have a Jackie and every county school district needs to have a Jackie. And we don't. And that's the problem. So you're the one who doesn't have this tons of knowledge in your head, tons of experience who you can speak confidently. And then you're in charge of the program at your school. I would say that one of the things you might do is kind of step back and understand that this is safety training. That's what this is. If you need to reframe it, I felt like uh, in 2023, this is going to be my mission. I'm going to retrain and reframe all of this into safety training. This is safety training. You train kids what to do on the playground when there's lightning, when there's a tornado, when there's a rainstorm, when there's a fire in the building. You train to all those things. You talk about them. And if this becomes one more thing that tells them whether to stay inside or outside the building in their classroom or go down to the gym or go underground, uh, then, then that's one more way that you're training safety training. If you incorporate it into your drills. Now, one of the things that, you know, is a problem that we hear about with this kind of training is uh, people who say, well, our run part is going to be we're going to send we're going to line the kids up like a fire drill and send them out to their spot. Oh gosh. And I'm like, "Oh, please don't do that." Um <laughs> in every step of the way, right? Please don't do that. That's not the answer. But here's a great example of and I think this happened up in New York. One of the incidents that occurred in, in a high school, I think just last year, the uh, the students were uh, instructed to like go down the street to Kmart. And they went down the street to, K that was their drill. The drill was they go to Kmart. And then this was my favorite part about the whole horrible incident, because there's so few favorite parts about horrible incidents, right? They told, I don't know if you heard this, but they told the, uh, they told the kids that's what their evacuation location was in this, in this place like uh, Kmart. And then they got on, somebody got on the microphone and said, would everybody who uh, was from X and X school, please go to the landscaping, uh, outdoor landscaping area and find your fifth grade teacher. Oh, goodness. Your fifth period teacher, your fifth period teacher. And then instantly they were, all the kids were there and they were able to identify, locate and account for all their students. Wow. What a brilliant wow. yet simple plan. I would love to, if I could just throw two things in there, because you raised some very important points. You know, number one, with regards to this training, it's not just school-based, right? The lessons that we teach it, these students in schools are things that can be used outside the school building. So for instance, um, I hate to bring this up, but last year on January 6th, there was a lot of stories about congressional staffers who had been through lockdown drills who understood how to keep the Congress people safe. And that kind of leads to my second point. Um, well, and sorry to back up for a second. You know, I work with students who 
in all reality, are not likely to have a Parkland, but these are kids who are exposed to community-based gun violence on a daily basis. And so we've had these conversations of, well, you say I can use this anywhere. How do I keep my family safe when people are shooting in my neighborhood? And it's the same principles. We want to get interior. We want to stay away from windows. We want to communicate to people where we are so that they know that we're safe. So it does have a practical value outside of the school. But I think one of the most important points that, Kate, you brought up is one of the challenges of getting the buy-in is the fact that we're trying to navigate a space with two very divergent yet parallel perspectives. If you actually talk to children, literally just sit down with them without any undue influence, and you ask them about lockdown drills, assuming that they're being done in accordance with trauma-informed principles and not active shooter theater, they will talk to you about it very matter-of-factly. I got up, I had Cheerios, I rode the bus, I did a math test, I had some art, I did a drill, I went to lunch, we went to the playground, I came home. It's very matter of fact because they don't know a world where this is not normal or where this wasn't always required. To date myself a little bit here, I graduated high school the year before Columbine. I should have graduated the year of Columbine, but I'm a a December baby. And I never went through an active shooter or lockdown drill a day in my life. In fact, other than volunteering to go through a full-scale simulated incident with our local law enforcement department. I've still never been on the receiving end. And so I think for the adults in the room, and I've witnessed this through the work that I've done, it is requiring them to shift their mindset into this new normal. And so a lot of the anxiety in the room is not the kids, it's the adults. And the problem with that is one of the foremost principles of trauma mitigation during lockdown drills and real-world lockdowns is model calm behavior. If you are calm, the kids are calm. If you are manic, the kids go right up there with you because you're their protector. And so if you don't trust what's going on, they don't trust what's going on. And so I think trying to navigate that is really important and something we need to be mindful of. You know, I think you want to be careful to, to, you know, not over emphasize, not overreact to in your training. Training doesn't have to be as complicated, I think, as everybody makes it. I mean, two, just two points. One is we talk run, hide, fight, or avoid, defend, deny, uh, the ALICE program, the this and that. It isn't about the name. It isn't about the name of what the training is. I mean, I, personally, I don't care what the name of the training is that you use. I care that you train, that you do the training that shows the options and gets people through because I think the I love you guys uh, idea is the standard protocol is fantastic. It it teaches the same things. I think we're all kind of teaching the same things. So don't get hung up on what you're naming, what you teach. And then the other thing is it doesn't always have to be scary and frightening. Uh, you know, I'm from Detroit, and after the Oxford High School shooting, which was horrible. Four people, four students were killed there. A principal of a small local Catholic school, I had several discussions with her, and she said, we don't really know how to do this. And what, and we, I talked to her about those other spaces, because the lockdown, they get the idea, but the other spaces, they don't get. And I said, well, what about in the gym? And she said, well, in the gym, you know, there's these, we have these windows, the emergency escape windows. And I said, has anybody ever been through them? And uh, she said, uh, no. And I said, well, do they open? She's like, I don't know. You know, so I said, well, why don't you have the kids go through them in their gym class as part of fun exercise, as part of like a challenge, like a rope, climbing a rope. And she called me weeks later and she said, we did that. The kids thought it was hilarious, but now they know how to get out those windows. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be as complicated and as scary as adults make it. 
Yeah. And you, I mean, it's not what you do, it's how you do it. Right. And going back to the old fire drill example, we don't set schools on fire to practice a fire drill. We don't need to simulate an active shooter to practice a lockdown. Absolutely. I I love that. So when we come back, we're going to start with what are the things that have gone wrong in drills? Where are the places where we've seen folks go uh, rogue, for lack of a better way to put it? Well, that was part one of the Run, Hide, Fight versus Lockdown debate hosted by Joffe Emergency Services. Part two is coming next week. But if you can't wait that long, head over to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing and you'll find the entire debate, including the video over there. Or you can head to Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button where you'll find all of our back catalogue of episodes ad free and the new episodes coming out one week early. So until next week, stay safe. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well there you have it you could get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com play for free right now are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 